Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to remind you, we've got shirts. Enterprising Individuals merchandise is available on our TeePublic store at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope. All one word. That's our parent network. We've got some great designs and we're always adding more. Don't be out of uniform. Show your love of Star Trek and support enterprising individuals at the same time. Just go to tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope and check out our merch. Speaking of merch, we have a winner in our recent Apple Podcasts review contest. iTunes user James underscore Thurber is the lucky winner of a 50th anniversary Star Trek Trivial Pursuit card set for leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And I have to I have to say, love Walter Mitty, big fan of James. Hit us up at EISTpod at gmail.com or on our social media on Facebook or Twitter at EISTpod so we can get you your prize. We're always looking for feedback from you, the listener, so please give us ratings and reviews wherever you get the show, because we appreciate it. Dave Rossi is back on the program today in an episode that we recorded, ooh, very, very early in 2018. I hadn't planned on holding it for this long, but that's how things go sometimes. You don't think it be like it is, but it do. But just as season three of the show started to take shape, I realized that our talk about this side of paradise and about the character of Spock fit perfectly near the end of the season uh, of this show. So thanks to Dave for his patience. And I don't think there's anything too anachronistic in the dialogue of the episode. We talk a little bit about Discovery season one, which was on the air at the time. And Dave somewhat cryptically mentions a writer who was very interested in gathering information about the early life of Spock, hinted at in This Side of Paradise. Dave couldn't say any more then, but now it seems clear that that must have been in preparation for Spock's upcoming appearance in Discovery Season 2. So, (laughs) sorry everyone, Um, it was there under my nose the entire time, a big scoop, but I wasn't allowed to share it with you. But now we have Spock to look forward to on Discovery and maybe some more details about his past with Layla. It wouldn't be a Spock-focused episode without me once again bringing up competency porn like I did when I talked with Pete the Retailer from the Star Wars Minute about the episode The Galileo 7. Uh, That episode of this show is still available in the archive, and we discuss it again when talking about Spock's character on this episode. We briefly talk about Captain Janeway and the similarities that she shares with Kirk, that is, being by the book, but willing to break the rules to get the job done. And if you're a Janeway fan, we have a t-shirt that celebrates her dauntlessness, which you can find as mentioned before, at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope. Thanks to Dave Rossi. Love talking to him and hope you enjoy. Let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, a Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and here's a PSA. 100,000 deaths annually from alcohol, 20,000 from prescription drugs, deaths from spores overdoses, zero. Legalize it. 
I'm joined on this episode again by Dave Rossi. Dave worked as a production associate on Star Trek, The Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, and The Next Gen films. He also worked as an associate producer on Star Trek Enterprise. He was a supervisor of Star Trek projects for Rick Berman Productions and was a visual effects producer for the remastering of the original series. Dave, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Good to have you back on board. Today we'll be talking about This Side of Paradise, the 24th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. In a galaxy of memorable Trek characters, there is perhaps none so enduring and fascinating as Mr. Spock, the half-human, half-Vulcan science officer, whose equal parts stoic and profound. The credit for his success as a character should rightly go to his creator, Gene Roddenberry, but an equal measure of appreciation must be given to Roddenberry's creative collaborators, who took Gene's concept of a half-breed curiosity and built him into the cornerstone of the franchise that Spock became. And chief among those collaborators are Leonard Nimoy, the actor who brought him to life, and Dorothy Fontana, the writer who gave that life amazing depth. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Dave, let's check in with you. Are you watching Star Trek Discovery? I am watching Discovery, yeah. And yeah, how could you, I not, right? I mean, it's well, Star Trek. Well, of course, yeah. Are you enjoying it so far? I, you know what? I, uh, I'm kind of going back and forth on it. Um, uh, there are episodes... Uh, first of all, I, I, all the money they're putting into this thing is is on the screen. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, uh, show. It's beautifully produced. Um, it's very well acted. I, I just... I don't have that feeling yet from these characters that they're the idealized Star Trek characters that I'm used to and that I like to tune in to watch. So I have, I'm having a little struggle with it, but, uh, but I'm tuning in every week. And, and it's funny because, you know, you look on Twitter and geez, there's, there are people who are uh, actively hating on this show, but they're watching it every week. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that seems to be the curse of uh, of fandom. Yeah. I hate this. Uh, when is it on next? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But it's a, you know, it's a first season show. I'm willing to, to, give it some time to get going. I certainly, I wasn't a big fan of next generation when it first started in season one. So, <laughs> sure. okay. uh, you know, so I, you know, I'll let it go where it goes and, and, and hopefully they'll, uh, maybe this is their path to, to discovering, uh, no pun intended. Sure. You know, what, what these characters, uh, ultimately will, will grow to be. So, yeah. And it's interesting that you um, keep saying characters. I think that's a big focus. You know, this is a different kind of show and it is very much, uh, well, it's serialized. And I think it's very uh, much based on or following the journey of these characters um, instead of having the sort of Star Trek thing where, sure, there's characters that we appreciate and they develop, but every week it's what's going on on this planet or what's the problem on the station this week. Uh, you know, we're really following these personal stories of these characters more than sort of a general sci-fi allegorical commentary um, week to week like we get on the old shows. Yeah, making it serialized has, has changed the game. I mean, it's because it's one story, um, you're getting a much more magnified piece of this. I'll, I'll tell you the, 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 one of the big things that, that, uh, keeps rubbing against me kind of the wrong way is I, I don't understand why they chose this time frame to tell the story in, uh -huh. I, um, you know, to me, um, I think Star Trek should always be moving forward. I, I, you know, I, I think there are always stories to tell. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand the choice of, of pigeonholing yourself by sticking yourself in such a continuity laden kind of arena. Um, because to me, the, the only thing that's tying them there is, is the Sarek relationship. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, this story could have been told at any time. I, I, so 
I, I kind of, I'm a little bit at odds with that, but, um, but again, I mean, it's an enjoyable show. It's fun to watch. So, yeah. uh, so I'm on board for, for, uh, the foreseeable future, I should say. Yeah, that's a great point. And the production or just Paramount in general seems to be a little gun shy or, or maybe phaser shy about moving forward because of course they rebooted the films to go back to the original series as well. So yeah, I mean, the, the story they're telling could definitely be told, you know, in a future time, in the 25th century. Maybe, right. But they seem to want to play in that same uh, sandbox. Uh, you, you mentioned the budget before, and as somebody who worked for years on various Trek series, um, what do you think of the production? I mean, that is, you know, is, do you think it's easier or harder now to produce a Trek show than it was 20 years ago? I think that it's certainly much more expensive to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I, I've heard that these budgets are $9 million an episode. Yeah. Right. Um, which is, I mean, wow. I mean, ours were uh, uh, just north of two million an episode. Right. Uh, and then again, we did twenty six episodes a year, right? twenty four yeah. episodes yeah, right. or whatever. So, um, but it, yeah, I think I think it's harder in as much as there's more. You know, we on Next Generation and and those subsequent shows, we had a lot of autonomy. Um, we didn't have network notes. Even the studio didn't give us very many notes. I mean. The, the show was firing on all cylinders. It was very popular. And so we were uh, uh, kind of free to set our own course. And I think it's it's the opposite of that today. I think that mm. there are agents weighing in, managers weighing in, networks weighing in, the studios weighing in. I mean, I, I think there's a lot that you have to maneuver. So in that regard, I think it's a lot harder. Was that uh, an effect of uh, syndication or was it just the fact that, oh, this is just a little sci-fi genre show. Nobody really cares about it. Well, it, I mean, the show was making so much money for the studio and, and it was so popular uh, yeah. that I think the studio was like, look, you guys are, you, you know, whatever you're doing, it's working. Just keep going. Just kind of a hands off attitude from the studio since since the show was getting more successful every season. What, what do you think about the news that Quentin Tarantino is producing and possibly directing an R-rated <laughs> Trek film? Um, Speaking of people who don't like to uh, have too many notes. You know, look, for, yeah, right. Uh, you know, first, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, look, he has a very definitive style of movie making. Uh, and and some of his movies I like and others I don't. And yeah. I, But I don't think... Any of what he does fits in a Star Trek universe, and that's like I'm an old fogey man. I, I'm that uh, my Star Trek is my Star Trek, and and it's <laughs> it's certainly something that's evolving and 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 can change, and I realize that. But I don't think what he makes will be my Star Trek, and, and not that it's aimed for me. But um, yeah. I, I think these these fandoms that have such deep running rivers of of passion with people. They go into these movies and these television series, and there are certain things that that individuals, that we as individuals, need to see happen for it to to scratch that itch for us. And if it doesn't, I, I notice a lot of people are they immediately go to, well, that show sucks or that movie sucks. And you know, I, I guess the most recent one is the is um, the latest Star Wars movie. And look, right. there, there are things in that movie. They, they treated Luke Skywalker in a way that I did not enjoy. But the movie, it was a good movie. Do you know what I mean? And there's a, there's a difference, I think, that, that people, when they don't get that thing that scratches their itch, they take it out and they immediately say the movie sucks. Yeah. 
and that's not necessarily true. I think it's it's that the 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 movie didn't give you what you want. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Yeah. Um, so in that in that vein, going back to Tarantino, I don't know. Maybe he'll do something that people will find is brilliant. I just I don't think his sensibility um, would would scratch that itch for me. Um, I would have said that the Beastie Boys had no place in Star Trek, but that seems to have worked out. So maybe he'll <laughs> maybe he'll drag Cool and the Gang into this one. Well, uh, it's funny can... because I, I you know I, I'm looking at there's a lot of chatter about Discovery on online and. Um, it really is – it's interesting how many people instantly glommed on and from week to week are saying, this is the best Star Trek I've ever seen. And yet there are people on there who are saying, this is nothing like Star Trek. Right. I mean, it's, so I, I don't know what that message is. Is is it that Star Trek is this kind of nebulous thing that just – that that from generation to generation is going to, to, to change and because they call it Star Trek, that's your Star Trek? I mean, I – I don't know. Deep philosophical questions uh, <laughs> that are definitely suited for this show. Uh, when, when you were last on the show, we discussed the episode The Naked Time, which, similar to This Side of Paradise, is what I like to affectionately term a crazy gas episode. Why pick two crazy gas episodes in a row? Well, uh, This Side of Paradise was the first episode I ever saw as a child. Ah, yes. Uh, and I, I think it, you know, it's the it's the episode that that not only got me interested in the show, but uh, I instantly um, revered Kirk for for his ability to overcome the spores, his, um, you know, uh, his thinking, well, I'm going to have to take some knocks here from this super, <laughs> this super strong guy if I want to win. Uh, right. You know, I mean, everything about him is so heroic in this episode. Um <laughs> I love the shot where Spock, you know, beams back to the ship and they just frame it uh, from Kirk's hip, you know, from behind. And he's got the, this is my convincing pipe. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. He's got the logic stick. I think that we talked on the last uh, time we talked about how Nimoy is so great as the abstemious Mr. Spock. But it's always great to see Nimoy get to stretch his legs as an actor and show a little emotion in the character. Those, I think those are the best episodes. I think we talked about it before. I mean, and, and, uh, uh, and even episodes where they, where it's it's not overtly displayed. I think we even might have mentioned it last time. Like one of my favorite moments from an episode is when uh, in um, in uh, the Methuselah episode, where at the end, you know, Kirk uh, McCoy says, "I just wish he could forget her." And McCoy leaves Kirk's quarters, and Kirk is asleep with his head on the desk. And right. Spock just walks up and says, "Forget." Does the mind meld and says, "Forget." Right. And you know, it's such a, a subtle uh, moment, but such a very strong moment for that character to to lower those those barriers and help his friend. I mean, it, that really says a lot. And those those are the best moments with Spock, and certainly this one. Holy cow! I mean, it, they just they just open the chest wide open. Well, other than the perfectly good reasons you've already given, why did you choose this specific episode to discuss today? Uh, again, uh, it's, uh, um, well, today's my birthday and, Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. And so I thought I would talk about my, uh, my, one of my, it's one of my favorites because it is the first. Yes. 
Well, I hope this is a nice little present to you. This is a popular episode, too. I've already had to dash the hopes of a few potential guests who wanted to talk about this side of paradise. Uh, so all eyes are on you for this one. <laughs> Birthday boy. <laughs> great. great. <laughs> well, we're talking the original series episode, This Side of Paradise, the 24th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. It first aired on March 2nd of 1967. The teleplay for this episode is by DC Fontana, who has a storied name in the history of Star Trek. We'll talk about her a little more in a moment. The story for the episode is by DC Fontana and Nathan Butler, which was a pseudonym for Jerry Soule, and we'll unpack that in a moment as well. It was directed by Ralph Sineski, who's another name that you'll hear a lot in connection with the original series. This was Sineski's first episode of Trek that he directed, and based on the success of this episode, he was hired as the third director for the series, behind Pevney and Daniels. He'd go on to direct six more episodes in the second and third seasons, until he was fired from the show during the production of The Tholian Web, which was the ninth episode of the third season. We talked about the Tholian web on an early, uh, earlier episode this season, but as somebody who worked in production for a long time, I'm curious to get your opinion. Um, Sineski was fired off of the Tholian web by Fred Freyberger, who replaced Roddenberry as executive producer in the third season of the show. And the reason given for his firing was that the episode was behind schedule. Although there were a lot of mitigating factors uh, to the situation, you can read about it in These Are the Voyages, Volume 1. There was complicated costume elements, um, they were breaking in a new director of photography. So I guess my question is, when you're producing a weekly show, is the clock everybody's boss? Are you constantly behind the eight ball during the production from the perspective of schedule? Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, starting at the beginning of the season, you have a little leeway, um, but ultimately that last show has to be delivered because there's an air date schedule. Right. You know, look, everybody gets behind schedule. There are things that, you know, a director takes too long. And and the way that these shows are budgeted and scheduled, it's well, the way we did it was by pages. So every sure. day you, you had a certain amount of pages to do. And that equated to a certain amount of hours. And, um, you know, certainly there were a lot of times where directors went over three, four, five, six, seven, ten, twelve hours. I mean, yeah, they, it happens. But um um, there, there must've been some other factor involved, I would think. Yeah. I think there was a lot of political, uh, things going on behind yeah. the scenes as well. Cause I this agree. is where, uh, Desilu was picked up by Paramount and they had sort of slashed the budgets for the show and they had a show that was popular, but they had no real way to sort of track or measure that. And so I think that as a genre show, they were like, well, if this falls apart, you know, we'll just cancel it. Big deal. Yeah, and and you know it's uh, in television, it's different than feature films. Really, the executive producers of the show have all the power, um, and and directors are are you know they come in, they certainly have they put their edit together, but ultimately yeah. it's it can be completely re-edited if, by an executive producer if they wish it to be. Whereas <laughs> on, in, on feature films, it's the opposite. The director is the ultimate say. Yeah. Uh, so so you know directors don't have as much power in television as the executive producers do, and so it, it, certainly if there was some problem or uh, or they didn't see eye to eye. Um, even, you know, who knows? I mean, it could be something personal. It could be, uh, uh, Freeberger had somebody he wanted to bring in as a director. You know, you never know. I mean, yeah. I, um, uh, but, but just to be behind schedule, I don't, I don't think that, that carries a lot of water. Interesting. Uh, this episode takes place over the star dates 3417.3 to 3417.7. And your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25 word synopsis of this side of paradise. 
<laughs> if you go over it, you're fired. No, I'm just kidding. I forgot you do this. <laughs> uh, the crew of the Enterprise is exposed to alien spores that release their inner inhibitions and allow them a taste of paradise. Oh, that's that's very good. That's a good pitch. Uh, also, uh, colonists erect white picket fence on alien planet for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, I think it was shot at a, uh, a place Disney owns. Uh, uh, yes. Disney's gold, uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Golden Acres? The Golden Oak Ranch. Golden Oak Ranch, that's what it was. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that is one of our interesting facts from our memory banks for this episode. Uh, many TV shows and films have been shot at the Golden Oak or the Disney Ranch, uh, both at the time and today. Uh, like Mickey Mouse Club, Zorro, Apple Dumpling Gang. Um, some of is it, does it still exist today? Oh yeah, some of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, sort of outdoor shots were there for the new movies. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Kung Fu, so on and so forth. Uh, exterior scenes for the TNG episode Silicon Avatar were filmed at the Disney Ranch, as well as some of the scenes for the DS9 pilot Emissary. And for this episode, the original plan was to, this is a production sort of note, um, the plan was to shoot for three days on location at the ranch, but the guest star, Jill Ireland, fell ill. Uh, it was actually suspected that she might have the measles. So they shot everything without her character, and then they planned to return uh, when the actress was available. Uh, she came back the next day. Turns out she was okay. She didn't have the measles, but the ranch was already booked. So they eventually completed the location filming at Bronson Canyon, which is another famous location in Griffith Park in L.A., Right, that's where, that's where they did the hanging tree, the Spock hanging from the tree thing. That's right, uh, which is a scene that was not in the script, it was improvised on the day. Um, the original series episode Bread and Circuses and also parts of the TNG episode Darmok were also filled in Bronson Canyon. And this is the last appearance of food processors in the transporter room. One wonders why they were there in the first place. I think in this episode, they're there mainly so Spock can put his fist through one. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned the Tholian web before. Uh, in that episode, it stated that until the Defiant, there had never been a mutiny on a Starfleet vessel. Although this episode and the events of Star Trek Discovery would seem to contradict that statement. Yeah. And you get Eddie Paskey's really... Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> really committed uh delivery yeah uh it's it's yeah eddie capacity of course a longtime guest star um not a lot of lines but it's if the ones are if your lines are good then that's the way to go <laughs> and i love that when he's just like yeah it's, yeah it's mutiny that's right <laughs> yeah yeah it was a great delivery uh, Frank Overton appears in this episode as Elias. He was a regular on the series 12 O'Clock High, and he made guest appearances on shows like Wagon Train, Perry Mason, and Bonanza. He also played Sheriff Tate in the film To Kill a Mockingbird. And sadly, he died only a month after this episode aired of a heart attack at the age of 49. Ooh, that's awful. Which, and I don't, you know, I mean, I'm sure that he uh, made a lot of money, got a lot of rolls off of his looks, but I was looking at him and I'm like, that guy's only 49? City yeah, miles. That's the time, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, um, sadly, Jill Ireland uh, died of breast cancer. Uh, not too... Well, actually, she um, died in 1990. Uh, she plays Layla Colomi, of course, in this episode. She was an infrequent guest star on TV shows of the 60s. She was married to actor David McCallum when this episode was filmed. McCallum, of course, played Ilya Kiryakin in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And she married later in life uh, Charles Bronson in 1968 and was with him until her death in 1990. She appeared in many of Bronson's films such as The Mechanic, Breakout, and Death Wish 2. The shot of the empty bridge in this episode was used to help recreate the TOS bridge for the TNG episode Relics, where Scotty visits a recreation of the Constitution-class bridge in the holodeck. 
And the music for this episode, which is particularly lovely, is mostly reused from the episode Shore Leave, including the Ruth theme, which accompanies the Spock Layla love story. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the um, the flute theme there. Yep. Which is another uh, instance of the show um, being smart with money and going, hey, that worked out before. Let's just bring that back. <laughs> right. It's like the uh, the fight music in uh, Amok Time. <laughs> well, you know, when you're, when you're on a budget. Yeah. And it's a great composition, but it's like, oh, OK, time to punch somebody. Here comes that theme again. Yeah. As far as this episode itself goes, uh, Jerry Soule, the writer, uh, was a prose writer as well, and he wrote two other episodes of the series, uh, The Corbomite Maneuver and also Whom Gods Destroy. Uh, he also wrote for The Twilight Zone, and his original treatment for the episode, like a lot of sort of treatments or sort of pitches are, was, uh, what if the crew of the ship was on LSD? Hey, it's the 60s. Let's <laughs> do that. And so he wrote the initial draft, uh, which was entitled Power Play. And in that draft, it was Sulu who was infected by the spores, and he would fall in love with Layla. In the draft, uh, Sulu is diagnosed with a condition that would keep him out of Starfleet, and the spores cure it. And this is similar to the TOS uh, episode for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, where, of course, McCoy finds out he has a fatal condition. And over the course of the episode, he falls in love with the woman, and he's cured of this mystery ailment. Um, in early drafts of the script by Soul, the spores were telepathic, and when they possessed a person, they would sort of add them to this kind of gestalt consciousness, uh, and they could cure any condition, the spores, including death. Uh, at the end of the story, they're revealed to have been a benevolent intelligence that didn't mean any harm to the crew, but affected them nonetheless. And Roddenberry liked this initial script, but he felt it didn't quite work. So he handed it to DC or Dorothy Fontana, who had written Charlie X and Tomorrow is Yesterday for the show's first season. And Roddenberry reportedly told her that uh, if you can rewrite this script, then you can be my story editor, uh, which is a role that she took on in the show's second season after right. the departure of Stephen Karabetsos. So she rewrote, wrote, she rewrote the script into the form that was eventually shot, and she changed the origin of the spores uh, from being just in a cave uh, to the alien flowers that spray the spores on people. Um, Soul, however, was dissatisfied with the script, and he chose to be credited by his pseudonym, Nathan Butler, which is something that, you know, happens. I, I was researching uh, DC Fontana for the show, and she actually has um, a uh, pseudonym that she uses as well, because I guess, you know, when you're a writer, um, people don't always do what you want them to do with your script. Right. So uh, her pseudonym is Michael Richards, which is like her two brothers' names. <laughs> which I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I've got a question from a production standpoint. Is it standard practice to have the writer around uh, during shooting? I I imagine it's probably normal, but it, just in case somebody wants to talk about rewrites or a line change or something, yeah. I know that on our show, it wasn't that way. The writers kind of stayed in the, uh, stayed in the writer's room and, and, and didn't go down to the stage very much. Okay. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, it'd be one thing if you had a staff writer or you had somebody like Gene Kuhn or Fontana who was always around. Um, if you've got a like a write-in script, you know, or something that was submitted, like who knows where that person is? I guess they probably couldn't be around for production. Right. Um, Dorothy went on to be the story editor and contributing writer for the series. Uh, she was the youngest story editor in Hollywood at the time, at the age of 27, and one of the few female staff writers in Hollywood. She got her start in Hollywood writing for Westerns. Uh, her first scripts were for the series The Tall Man, which is created by Samuel Peoples, who wrote the second pilot for Star Trek, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And he was also a consultant on the original series. And the story is sort of muddled. I've heard that she was Roddenberry's secretary, but that's not entirely true. Uh, she was working for Roddenberry as a production secretary 
uh, on his series, The Lieutenant. And when Star Trek was picked up by Desilu, he asked her to write a script for the show, and that script became uh, Charlie X. So she was definitely somebody who he had in his pocket. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, absolutely. He, he knew uh, was smart, and I'm sure that he must have definitely you know bounced things off of her uh, just in the course of their everyday work. Uh, she left the editor position after the second season, but she remained under contract for the show. Uh, as a writer for the third season. And here's something that I didn't know that I found was fascinating. She was the one who introduced um, William Ware Th uh, Thies, the costume designer of the original series, to Roddenberry. She basically, like, got him on the show. So all of his, you know, signature wow. uh, costume designs, yeah, like, he was a guy that she knew just in her sort of day-to-day -day, uh, work in Hollywood and said, hey, you should check this guy out. He'd be good for the show. Wow, look at that. That's a chain of events. Right, exactly. Uh, you never know where these great people are going to come from. Uh, later on in her career, she was the associate producer and story editor for Star Trek The Animated Series, which for which she wrote the episode Yesteryear. And she was a uh, associate producer on the first 13 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, where she also worked as a story editor and consultant. And she co-wrote the pilot, uh, Encounter at Farpoint, uh, and some other episodes for that show. And she wrote the DS9 episode Dax, which is the episode where... Um, from the first season where Dax is put on trial for something that Curzon Dax supposedly did. Right. And I find it interesting because uh, I would, every Star Trek series seems to have this character that is very complex. Um, characters like Spock, characters like Odo uh, or Dax or Data, who is more than just a collection of personality traits. There's also elements to their backstory or their conce concept as a character that provide complication. And so as somebody who wrote a lot uh, for Spock and filled out the backstory of the Vulcans in the universe, I think it's, uh, it's telling that she wrote uh, that episode for Dax, which takes this character, which is a new concept, you know, the idea that we have a character who is one way now, but has been several characters before and sort of layers in some backstory and makes us ask questions about the nature of that character. And she's a great writer. And, and she yeah. comes from, she comes from a time when, when a lot of these, you know, a lot of the people that they hired were actual science fiction novelists and, right. uh, uh, but, but they were storytellers back then, you know, I mean, the way episodes are kind of cut today, uh, they're, they're a lot more frenetic. They're, you know, some people would say a, a lot faster. I mean, look, certainly there are times where you look at an old sixties cop show or whatever, and you know, he picks his keys up off the table. He goes and locks his front door. He walks to right. his car. He starts atmospheric. The, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so the the editing has certainly come a long way. But but um, you know, when you show younger kids um, things like Star Trek, I, I, and I've done this, and and I get a, a lot of times the same note, which is they talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, that's story. That's, you know, you, they're telling you the story. So you have to listen in. And and um, it's just an interesting change. But but uh, Dorothy Fontana is just uh, she's great. And, and her episodes are, are some of the, the best ones. Yeah. There's the scene at the end of this episode where they're talking about how maybe, you know, we 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 can't stay in paradise. You know, we walked out of paradise this time and we need to claw and we need to struggle and all that sort of thing, which is yeah. uh, talky, like you said. Uh, but then in an episode um, later in the show, or actually earlier in the show, um, the conscience of the King, uh, there's, they get to the end of the episode and Kirk has sort of fallen in love with this woman who, you know, goes crazy and has, has uh, killed her father. And Bones is like, 
they're, they're talking about Kirk and they're like, you know, does did, he, did you really love her? And he's just does. He's like a head warp one <laughs> and he doesn't really say anything. <laughs> and McCoy's like, well, there's my answer. OK, so they could do both. Yeah, sure. Uh, so clearly she was um, prolific. Uh, she was easy to work with and she could produce quickly, which are three big check marks for a good TV writer. Um, it's also um, it's interesting that she seemed to have a great eye for character development and her favorite character to write for was Mr. Spock. And like I said before, she contributed many elements of his backstory and the Vulcan culture. Uh, in one line, she introduces Spock's father and mother, um, of course, the ambassador Sarek in this episode, who will meet in a second season episode written by her, Journey to Babel. And also, I mentioned the animated series episode Yesteryear, which is a great episode that focuses solely on Spock when he travels to Vulcan in the past through the Guardian of Forever and meets his uh, child self. Uh, this episode is still early, though, in the development of the Vulcan people or the Vulcanian people, as they say in some yeah, of the right. early episodes. Right. Also, um, it brings up the, uh, the, uh, the, the long-running sort of question of Spock's real name or his family name. The one you can't pronounce. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that uh, you know another uh, Star Trek or another fan show that I can think of, uh, Doctor Who, uh, makes this big deal about what the, the Doctor's real name is. Uh, I think everybody's okay with Spock. <laughs> there's yeah. this there's this open question that <laughs> yeah. he's got some different name, but you never really hear it debated all that much. No, certainly his dad's okay by calling him by his last name, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, even between Vulcans, you think that they'd do something. Uh, in a uh, fanzine, uh, Spockanalia, uh, Fontana revealed uh, what Spock's name uh, was, uh, as far as she was concerned, and it's unpronounceable. It's a string of consonants, essentially. I'll put it in the show notes, but I, I couldn't even say it, really. He's like a piece of Ikea furniture. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and interestingly, uh, Barbara Hambly's novel Ishmael gives Spock's full name as Shin Chagai Spock, which, there, I just pronounced it, so that's not unpronounceable. <laughs> but you're but very it, talented. But it is strange. Well, and I am, that's true, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I think that it's... Her, her story is one of success, and it's also um, astounding that she had to have run into uh, resistance. Um, just being a woman, she's working with, uh, like you said before, a lot of people who aren't like you know TV writers necessarily. They are themselves um, probably white men uh, smoking pipes. Right. Uh, like I, I love Theodore Sturgeon, you know, but he seems like a very oh, this guy is like a fifties sci-fi writer. Yeah. And so she's working with people like that. They're probably not convinced that she should be where she is, and so she was, you know, required to kind of you know put up or shut up, and and she put up. Yeah. And working for a show that that uh, I mean certainly didn't didn't do the uh, uh, the best job of it, but but tried to to portray equality in the future. It's a show that, <laughs> for all of uh, all the talk about uh, Trek being so forward socially, uh, it, it was still made in the '60s, and so <laughs> exactly, yeah, solidly, and, <laughs> yeah. And we see that, and it's so sad um, in, to me uh, that the show ends on a sh uh, episode like Turnabout Intruder, which it's just yeah, like wow, not great, <laughs> yeah, not real good. Uh, well, but, it's interesting when I started showing my I started showing my kids the original series and. Um, after, I don't know, five or six episodes, my daughter, who at the time was, I don't know, eight, I think, just kind of very astutely turned to me and said, how come it's always Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy doing everything and there are no girls doing anything? Huh. And I thought, oh, my God, she's right. What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but, but she was right. And it, it, it's, you know, 
uh, I grew up with it. And so that's my, you know, you, you, you find yourselves in these kind of frameworks that you're, that you're brought up in. And, um, sometimes it takes an eight year old to shake you free of it. Yeah. That's fascinating. And we've all had the experience of watching, uh, like a classic film, something in black and white, um, where we have to go, all right, well, this is a great film, but I have to sort of compartmentalize my feelings about some of the uh, gender and racial politics. And I'm not thrilled about having to do that with Star Trek as we continue into the 21st century. We'll definitely hit a point where your daughter is showing Star Trek to her kids, and it's completely compartmentalized. They're like, yep, the ladies had to wear really short skirts back then. Right. But, um, you, you might still like this show. Give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard, too, that – and this, of course, might be justification as well – but in a lot of ways, you know, the miniskirt was an expression of sexual liberation uh, by women in the 60s. Um, when it's a male costume designer with male writers and producers asking actresses to put it on, that's one thing. But uh, I've heard that uh, it, it's a – you know, it's a, it's a form or an expression of, um, of women's lib, basically. Yeah, and there's, a, there's a, an old um... – uh, LP, an old record, uh, for those of you who don't know what a record is, look it up, um, <laughs> uh, called Inside Star Trek that, that Gene Roddenberry did. And, uh, and there's a, there's a, it, it was something where he did some live, um, discussion somewhere and they, they taped it or Columbia house taped it and put it on a record and, um, or I recorded it. And, um, at one point he says, you know, he, he talks very highly about the fact that, that, you know, he wanted to put women in positions of command. He felt that it, it's ridiculous that women can't be equal. But he also makes the point that, but don't get me wrong, I will never stop using women as sex symbols. <laughs> nor, nor, nor will I stop using men as sex symbols. I mean, it's, sure. you know, it, it, he, he, so he goes on this thing. And I, I, I know that there's a, uh, for people looking today, you just tune into that show and you go, oh my God, how misogynistic is this show? The way, yeah. you know, the, the women are always afraid, the, the men are always heroic, the women are always wearing next to nothing. You know, it's a, and, and certainly it, it is a product of its time. But, but it also, um, it also does try to speak out about a lot of stuff. It just unfortunately is a product of its time. It's not hard to understand the enthusiasm that uh, DC had when you consider the toys that she got to play with, like the character of Mr. Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. Totally. Yeah. Roddenberry's original concept for Spock, if you look at some of the, uh, like the original um, pitch document Star Trek is, uh, is that he would be half Martian, uh, and he would, have, he would have reddish skin. And the idea that he would be somewhat devilish looking was an aspect that stuck around um, through all the revisions of the character in the scripts. And the studio wasn't a fan of the character. <laughs> uh, they kept saying things like, uh, get rid of the guy with the ears. I don't know what that's doing there. But Roddenberry was committed to this character. He kept him around despite all these uh, studio notes against him. Yeah. Yeah. I, in, in this Inside Star Trek LP, um, they he talks about how they give him the choice of getting rid of number one, the woman first, uh, second in command, or getting rid of Spock. And he keeps, he says, I kept Spock and I, married the woman which right. would have been awkward the other way around so yeah right <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh apparently uh roddenberry felt that he himself struggled with dealing with his emotions pers personally and professionally so he envisioned a character who had mastery over his emotions and had succeeded in spite of him or, or uh, in spite of them and that's sort of like part of the concept of where spock came from which i found to be really interesting um 
Martin Landau was apparently an early pick for the actor to play Spock. Right. Which would be um, – that's fun to think about. <laughs> uh, yeah, co-star, I, think, I think the guy from the Hawaii Five-0 as well, right? Uh, Jack Lord? Jack Lord, yeah. Interesting. Uh, of course, Martin Landau was on um, Mission Impossible as uh, Leonard Nimoy was as well. Uh, but Leonard Nimoy was always an early consideration. Uh, Nimoy had appeared on The Lieutenant in 1964, and Roddenberry had been really impressed by the actor. Uh, as far as Nimoy goes, he'd been a bit player in films in the 50s. He'd made numerous TV appearances in the 60s until he caught the eye of Gene Roddenberry. And as an actor, Nimoy appreciated the internal conflict that Spock experienced uh, as somebody who suppressed his emotions. Uh, I can see a, you know an actor would love to dig into the idea of a character who's got this inner dynamic, this push-pull between these you know, half-human, half-alien halves. Yeah. The way Nimoy plays Spock in the first unaired pilot of the series, The Cage, is somewhat more emotional than in the later series. Uh, he even smiles at one point when he's looking at, of all things, an alien plant. <laughs> and this was apparently a choice that was made by Nimoy because Jeffrey Hunter's take on Captain Pike was very cool and cerebral. He's kind of a, you know, a cool, cool cucumber. And, of course, as you mentioned, Major Barrett was playing number one and was also had an unemotional quality, although whether that was her skills as an actress, I'm not sure. Right. But once uh, Jeffrey Hunter was replaced and then uh, Major, Major Barrett was taken off the show, it opened the way for Spock to be that uh, more cerebral kind of cold character. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they just didn't have a handle on exactly what he was going to be or what the potential for him to be was. And I think uh, I think there's a story of... Uh, uh, of a, a director giving him a note in an earlier episode where um, he was going to react to something very um, emotionally or surprised. And the director said, no, you know, this guy's a, this guy is a scientist. I mean, you should, you know, you, you should just play it very, you know, fascinating. You know, it's, you're not worried right. about the danger. There's a, there's a, there's a curiosity here and you're interested in it. And that kind of opened the door for Nimoy to say, oh, I, I, I now I can kind of play off that. And, and, and it started to evolve from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great story. Um, I also think that his portrayal in the cage, like it's clear that they did not consider him to be uh, one of the tent poles of the series because he's just sort of there. He's yeah. know, he, like like a Sulu, you know, he's kind of around. Right. And uh, he's got a couple lines. And I know that, um, you know, he, Spock famously took off after the first season. Uh, he, you know, Leonard Nimoy was credited in the, in the open credits and they expanded the role. But even at the beginning, it seems like they knew what they had on their hands because you always had this dynamic between Kirk and Spock. And of course, later on, we'd add McCoy uh, for this sort of trifecta of the emotional character, the logical character, and the one that sort of separates them. But it's clear from the beginning they knew what they had in Leonard Nimoy. Absolutely. Why do you think we love Spock so much? I mean, he's definitely, I hate to be cliched, but he is probably my favorite character in the show and one of my favorite characters in fiction. But what do you think it is about him that resonates so well with people? Well, I think he's, he, he's you know, he does something that we can't. He, he, he seemingly controls his life in a way that, you know, <laughs> yes, you know, that, that, that we can't, but the, but the trick is he, he, even he can't escape it. You know, I mean, it's, he's, he's this very vulnerable, sometimes wounded by his background kind of character. Yeah. He's an underdog. He's been bullied. Um, uh, 
and yet he rises above it and is the you know the best Starfleet officer to ever live. I mean, he's you know he, he he's a, a shining example of boy determination and you know again willpower and and all those things we wish I think that we could exemplify not not so much the emotionless part of it, but but just to 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 have that kind of determination and drive and um, and overcome all of these these shortfalls that he has. And I think yeah, that's, that's the, 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 the passion that people feel about him. Yeah, that's a great point. I also like the fact that, or I think that the fact that he is reserved emotionally and doesn't give you a lot, like psychologically, it's not positive. It's, it's kind of like withholding, <laughs> but when you do get like an emotion or an expression from him, it's so much more powerful. It's, it's like in Star Trek two, you know, where he's in cap, he's the captain of the enterprise. They're on their way to check this thing out. And he basically, he offers the control of the ship to Kirk and Kirk's like, uh, don't worry about it. You know, you're, you're in charge. It's fine. And he says, you know, essentially like you're, I really care about you. Um, he says in subtext, you know, your best destiny was be, to be a captain and, and we're friends and all this. And you're like, uh, you never hear something like that from yeah. Spock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very powerful. He's uh, he does have uh, flaws. Um, you know, we admire a character with convictions and principles, but we still need them to be um, vulnerable, even if it's only slightly in a character like Spock. And I think that's why he's so loved, definitely loved better than a character like Wesley Crusher, who I think in a lot of ways is the dark side of this kind of character. <laughs> he's he's a genius. He's also you know he's also very smart. He's also very competent. But we hate him because he's he's too perfect, and yeah. he's clearly you know the author surrogate. Of uh, Spock is always fully in the story, um, and he'll solve whatever problem you throw at him. But he's not this character who is just there to be so perfect and to figure everything out and to have what drugs are explained to him because apparently he doesn't know that he's so perfect and innocent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a great moment in Bread and Circuses where uh, uh, McCoy and Spock are in the prison cell. Uh, I think it's Brendan Serkis, and um, and McCoy is saying to to Spock, you know, it's you know, it's not that you're in control. You're terrified. You're afraid of every single day. Afraid that you're gonna, you know, let this part of you slip, and that we're all gonna see it. And you know, I right. mean, he really kind of lays into him, yeah. and uh, and you can see that he's spot on. And and Spock just kind of turns to him, but and says, "Really, Doctor? <laughs> you know, like, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good combat, Spock." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Speaking of taking Spock down a peg, we get a great example of that in the scene in the transporter room in this episode, uh, where Kirk really gives it to him uh, about some of his perceived shortcomings. And you have to imagine that this is a chance for the writers, um, as it were, the writers' room, if there was one back then, to just kind of like, "All right, guys." what's wrong with Spock? Let's start throwing things out there. Like, you know, he's, he's an elf with a thyroid problem. Or, thyroid, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing that I didn't, didn't land for me and I don't understand uh, what the insult is, but he says that Kirk says that he should be squatting on a mushroom. Yeah. I don't know. He's the, he's the frog prince maybe. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I can see that. I Googled that term and the only thing that really came up or the first thing that came up was, uh, 
like, like an ESL site. <laughs> you know, you know you're in bad territory when you're trying to find out what something means, uh, like a song lyric or something. When people who are trying to learn the language and have done so <laughs> through pop culture are like, "Excuse me, what is this? What does this mean?" Yeah. And yeah. there was no good answer uh, given on that site, so that's bad. Uh, but yeah, uh, a traitor from a race of traitors, uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's the, pretty rough. The dog-faced boy. <laughs> the dog-faced boy is the uh, yeah, exclamation point on the end of that sentence. Yeah, yeah, it's like, wow. And and, and the you know the way he really digs into it. And you've got the gall to make yeah. love to that girl. Right. Jeez, <laughs> <He's just like, laughs> lay him off, man. And Spock respond. His responses are great because even when he is spored out, like he's still Spocky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. his responses are like, "Well, I'm not a computer. I'm a man. <laughs> like yeah. you, you can't computerize somebody." Well, it's like we haven't got to Spock's brain yet, but I see your point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My, you know, uh, my father was an ambassador. My mother a teacher. Excuse <laughs> me. Yes. <laughs> but it's great. It's a great uh, simmer. You know, that every, as Kirk just keeps going and keeps going, Nimoy's portrayal is great. I mean, it's where it's just like, okay, now now this is enough. <laughs> yeah. No, there was no need for that. <laughs> and it's a and it's a great plan from Kirk. Um, Kirk uh, is great in this episode, and I love how if anybody's going to get over the spores using emotions so quickly, it's Kirk. <laughs> like, he basically just goes... No, and then it suddenly yeah, he's but, fine but, again. <laughs> but even Kirk's, you know, this is one of the things I fell in love with is that, you know, when he's in his quarters packing the Samsonite yeah. <laughs> luggage that still exists apparently, um, yeah. you know, and he, he takes out that, that Medal of Valor or Medal of Honor or whatever it is, and he looks at it and he kind of smiles and then he slaps it shut and it starts right there. It starts with, this guy saying, what the hell am I doing? You know, I, this, he looks at this metal and it, it all of a sudden, you know, you see this whole thing flash before his face, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, there's something much more important that needs to be done here. What am I, what, how am I just packing this luggage and leaving? But he, 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 but you know, he keeps going, but he's from that point on, he's frustrated. He's, he's kind of at odds and he, uh, you know, and to me, it's just such a, uh, you know, look at Shatner is not known for subtle performances, um, but this one is, and yeah. uh, it's a really great moment. And when he finally gets in there and he, you know, he does the, I can't leave and the blue light shines on his face. I mean, it's, a, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really filmed in a fun way, but, um, an overt way, but a fun way. But, uh, but I love his performance through that. And, and it, it really is, it speaks to his relation with the ship. It speaks to his, you know, uh, his desire to command his, you know, all of those things. And, uh, and what's important in the ship and the crew. And, um, I, I love that whole sequence from the, from the moment he, he opens and takes a look at that metal and just the way he kind of runs his finger along and he kind of, you can tell he cherishes it and, and it means something to him. And, and, uh, I, I love that. I love that moment. That's neat that, the sort of psychology of the characters or what they really care about is really what sort of breaks them out of or allows them to pull away from the spore's influence. Specifically, it's the strong emotion, but it's, like you said, it's it's a character 
returning to their center and being true to themselves or you know what it is that they care about for Kirk it's his long career in, in the star service that's what's right. important to him and then we so we also get sort of character development by sort of like um, negative space with Spock because nobody ever really mentions in the early parts of the episode um, the division in him between Vulcan and human or, or any kind of racial stuff but Kirk digs into that immediately you'd have to imagine that it, maybe it would be possible to also make a similar appeal to Spock, who also values his long career in Starfleet. But immediately he goes to um, the sort of racial prejudice that I'm sure Spock has experienced. And without having to say, I've experienced racial prejudice in my time, that's the thing that it is apparently simmering under. That's the thing that gets him out of it. You know what I mean? Because it gets to the point where... He's, you know, he bends the bar and he starts throwing things around. And you wouldn't, if you're Kirk and you figure out that making somebody experience uh, intense emotion is the way to get them out of this, you've got your work cut out for you trying to provoke a Vulcan. And yet, you know, he well, manages to well, do it. I mean, imagine if it would have been, if if it's not Spock, imagine if it's a Vulcan, I mean, a full Vulcan. Yeah, Sarek or T'Pol or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what, you know, I think you would have to dig a lot deeper and a lot harder whereas with spock again it's always kind of simmering under the surface there and yeah. kirk knew right he knew exactly what to go for yeah that's one of the values of knowing your your staff <laughs> is that yeah, you'll be right. able to uh call them the dog face boy uh <laughs> i think with uh Sarek, you just go the earth is flat and let me show you this website that explains why and then <laughs> ah! that's right the rage I love the efficiency with which Spock deals with everything. Uh, also, you know, again, while he's um, spored out, but also once he's free um, and there's a great performance by Leonard Nimoy where he is restricted um, in his portrayal because he's playing a half Vulcan character. But you can see that there is there is a you know, when he says that I don't, I don't belong anymore, he's talking about not belonging like they say to the spores, but also he is once again, this guy who is yeah. the only half human, half Vulcan guy in the universe. And it's very plaintive and it's well done by Nimoy, but even so he knows that it's time to go back on the beat. And so he beams up uh, Layla to talk to her and he kills two birds with one stone because by basically confronting her with the fact that they can never be together, not only does he make her experience strong emotions, which break her free from the spores, but he also just breaks up with her. Like he's kind of got a two in one there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's like it's, a dear Spock letter. It's, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's very efficient. <laughs> I wonder about the nature of the relationship between the two of them because we. Spock has had, you know, several sort of loves or, or, or close brushes with romance as the show goes on. But this is the first one that we really get where, you know, apart from T'Pring, you know, the girl that he was uh, betrothed to when he was very young, that we get the idea that Spock has some kind of past, I hesitate to say love life, but something like that. And I wonder about the nature of their relationship, uh, which took place uh, six years ago on Earth, when he was, you know, he was already in the Starfleet at that point. Like, he was serving under Captain Pike on the Enterprise. Well, it's interesting because I don't know where this is happening or where it's coming up, but um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I don't know what I can talk about. But a a, a writer that, that Star Trek fans know uh, uh -huh. is, is working on something that I, uh, and I'm not sure what it is, but but he got in touch with me and the Okudas and Andre Bormanis and, and we, we start and with this precise thing, he was, he was talking about Layla Colomi. He was like, 
So let's talk about what what their relationship was. What could it have been? And sure. so, you know, we had this, uh, I don't know, week-long kind of email exchange with each other where we were debating whether or not there was actually a relationship there or whether it was her pursuing and him just not giving in because... Right, right. Yeah, because th through the whole thing, she's saying, you know, if, you know, uh, Sandoval says did, you know, basically did he reciprocate? And she says, well, if, if he had any feelings for me, he never let me know. Uh -huh. So what, so what was their relationship? You know, for, for yeah. her to say, I'm in love with you. I yeah. mean, it's uh, yeah. So who knows, you know, did Spock have a moment of weakness and they went out and did Jaeger bombs or something? I mean, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what exactly happened between them, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, uh, that is, boy, that is a tantalizing piece of uh, information that you've given us that you can't talk anymore about. So uh, that's what we like, that kind of teasing. Uh, no, but uh, I think it's significant that, and hopefully this writer is thinking about this, that it's said to have taken place six years ago. Of course, next year on the show, we get Pon Far. So I'm thinking maybe it was a hookup. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we, we got very deep into, into talking about Pond Farm, what that means, and, and yeah. does every Vulcan experience it, and and how did Sarek survive it, and how did, you know, I mean, right. we had a really in-depth conversation about it. It was really fun to talk about, and, and, and you know, because these things, they, they, they lay these terms out there and, and, and what they mean, but, but what do they mean, really? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you, you would think the species would die off if, you know, every seven years you had to return to Vulcan to do this thing. Yeah. Um, what happens when you have space travel and you can't make it? Are people just dying off? I mean, it's, you know, um, or, or is it more of a, um, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, we, we went back and forth and talked about it quite a bit. But, uh, uh, but yeah, what, what is, where does Ponfar fit into to Spock six years ago. Yeah. Right. And also this episode coming, you know, late in the first season, but early in the life of Star Trek, it's possible that after this, he maybe makes a decision about what he's going to do with his heart or with relationships, because it's not like he ever really gets a girlfriend on the show, but later on in other episodes, he sort of openly flirts or at least flirts right. with the idea of being with somebody like we see in uh, the cloud minders. He's very attracted to Druxine and basically has a conversation with her about, you know, how, what it's like to date a Vulcan and whether this is uh, this is going to happen here. Yeah. I, you know, I tend to think that like when you get to Pon Far, it's really, it's purely about to prank. Uh -huh. It's, it's whatever the trigger in their seven year old mind meld was. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that's where it that's where it kicks in. I, I, I can't believe that it's, you know, just every seven years you got to go back to Vulcan and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, start cruising chicks or, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> I think it's got to be it's to me, it makes more sense that, look, they did this mind meld. And, and at a certain point when they are are biologically ready, their brains go, OK, you guys got to get together now and right. go through this ritual and. uh um, so who, so I don't know. It could, it could, did Spock just have a hookup? Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> Isn't it on Star Trek Voyager where they like give Tuvok like a, um, a program, uh, where he can sort of, you know, uh, be with his wife in the marital way? I think so. And I think we also did something with, 
the other Vulcan that was on the show, and I can't remember his name, is played by I think Jerry Taylor's son played the part. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I don't, you know, that they, they all blend together. I hate to well, say, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, we also had the other Vulcan, and they had to deal with that as well. With the uh, it's a Balana episode, and and deals with Tarek, maybe his name was. I can't right. think of the Vulcan's name, but uh, yeah. There's some telling dialogue from Spock in this when he's infected by the spores. Uh, at first, you know, he seems to be aware of what's happening and he is actively fighting it. You know, he is almost begging, you know, for to to not be dragged into this or to lose control over his uh, emotions. And then later on, he says uh, to Layla, you know, I love you. I can love you, um, which I think lets us know that, you know, for whatever he said, he he must have feelings for her, but he feels like it's he just can't pursue them either for personal reasons or for reasons of his career or just you know the balance that he wants to maintain between right. his Vulcan the, and human sides. Exactly, the barrier is gone, right? The Vulcan shield is down, and so now he can he can take advantage of it. Yeah, he's a very disciplined character, and for me, it comes. I don't know if this is a term that exists or one that I made up, but I love it. Uh, he he exists in the realm of competency porn, which is. <laughs> <laughs> which is like us seeing a character who n- not like Wesley Crusher, not one that can do whatever and has no detractions, uh, but somebody who can accomplish whatever, but is also kind of tortured. Uh, Batman is a great uh, example of that. Yes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, especially in later uh, incarnations, which love to play up uh, his cocaine addiction right. and the fact that he is only satisfied by solving mysteries and can barely function socially. And so we see this very often. And I think that, of the sort of you know, pantheon of competency porn characters, Spock definitely is near the top for me, not the least of which because of his portrayal by Nimoy and also just the uh, writing behind the character, but also the fact that, you know, he's not dealing with his problems all the time. Like a lot of times, you know, Spock has many times been the guy who comes at the last second and saves the ship or does something amazing. And then every once in a while we get a... Um, a, a crisis of uh, personality with him, or we get an episode like, um, is it Kirok where he's in charge of the ship while Kirk is away and they have to make a decision about deflecting this asteroid. Yes. And he basically makes the wrong decision. And so they are now they're trying to race the asteroid back to the planet to pick up Kirk. And he's sort of like torturing himself. <laughs> right. We get the idea that he is not used to making mistakes, or at least uh, not things that he feels are mistakes. No, you get it in the Galileo Seven as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know where he ignites the fuel, and you know it's a it's a desperation move. But uh, but what's interesting about you know this side of paradise is he really once he's there, he really enjoys it. He lets himself he enjoys his ability to emote. I mean, yeah. he's you know, I mean, there's the the point where Kirk and Sulu and uh, uh, blue shirt guy show up to, to kind of gather him. And, yeah. you know, he's hanging from the tree and Kirk says, you know, you're, you're under arrest, Mr. Sulu, put Mr. Spock under arrest. And Spock goes, all right, come with me. He's just uh, I don't think I'd, I didn't want to, Jim. You know, it's just right. you this didn't really, communicator. I didn't want to. It's just this really <laughs> playful kind of like, you know, um, uh, it's the only time I think we've seen him that way. And as it's kind of early in the show, we still get a little bit of that uh, from all the characters that kind of removed a more military service uh, kind of aspect to their performances. Because I like when Spock is like, uh, 
yeah, I didn't feel like it. And Kirk's like, you didn't feel like it what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. feel like it, sir. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But you know what else is interesting about it is that, I, I don't know, maybe not everybody sees it this way, but it's uncomfortable for me to see him that way. There's a danger to it. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're watching the episode, you're like, as much as you're kind of enjoying watching him be like this, you're like, this isn't it. It feels wrong. You're like, this isn't right. Yeah. Uh, there's so there's there's a weird kind of day. It's not like McCoy going, have you ever all tasted a, you know, <laughs> a, a mint julep and, and Mr. Sulu going, yes, I get it now. It'd be wrong. You know, <laughs> a farm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is more like uh, this is, you know, dangerous for Spock in some way. It's too bad, too, because uh, Leonard Nimoy is a great actor. Um, he's, you know, he's a nice guy. He's got a nice smile. I always like seeing when, you know, he Spock is happy. But you're right. There is that element of danger. You see that in other episodes where he's not himself like, uh, is there in truth no beauty? Uh, when he is, you know, hosting the Medusan ambassador and he's just like, ooh, hello, everyone, what a starship. And you're like, something's yeah. wrong here. This doesn't feel right exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I like how you mentioned McCoy. He goes full Foghorn Leghorn in this episode. <laughs> he sure does. It's, he is, yeah. He's a, uh, he's a cross he's, between him and the Snagglepuss or something. Yeah. I, I mean, it's very weird. He finds somehow a mint julep, and you have to imagine if the episode went on for another five minutes, uh, he would have got his hands on a banjo somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But I, I also love that he it, it's not it's not a very elegant punch, but I love that they have McCoy, you know, uh, take a sw- you know, you, Often when you see McCoy in a fight or, or when you see them in a fight, it's McCoy kind of flailing off to the side somewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not really doing very well. But uh, but it was kind of interesting to see him kind of angry and 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 take a swing. Yeah, all of a sudden he's John Wayne. And he's yeah, like, exactly. You exactly. want to see how quick I can put you in the hospital? Yeah, <laughs> it was like his, it was like his old Western baddie roles came back. Right. Know? Yeah, it's the spores talking. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's interesting because right after he punches him, he's like, "I don't know what made me do that." Right. Yeah. Right. That's what snaps him back. You know, that's crazy. What did I just do? What a stupid thing to do. There seems to have to be an element of violence as these spores sort of leave the body, uh, at least for the male crew members, because, of course, Sulu gets into a fight with the guy he's yeah, with. with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, of course, they're throwing down over on the farm. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's a theme in this episode. Um, it's funny that we, we, we talked before about characters sort of returning to their true course or remembering what's important to them as uh, getting uh, being instrumental in them getting out of the sports influence. And the colonists seem to have been in, in it for a while. And I have to wonder what's behind that. Like, of course, our heroes are exceptional. They are heroes. But why couldn't, how, how come one of the colonists didn't stub his toe or something like that? Uh, you know, or maybe they ran out of, um, I don't know, milk for the coffee or something. And Yeah, so... like when all the animals died. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't, wouldn't that would... have been a sad day? Yeah, right. And I think this is maybe, I don't know, this is maybe a crazy idea, but I think that it has to do with the theme of um, colonialism. And I don't mean like the idea of, you know, taking over other countries, but I mean like literally building a colony uh, and how the hard work that's involved in that. You know, we see a very rustic sort of set, the picket fence that we mentioned before, and the idea that it's tough to be a Starfleet colonist. I mean, half the time Kirk is showing up at your planet and you're all dead because some blob ate you. And maybe this is, this is just a chance for these people to take a break 
and it turns into like a three year break. But well, I think that, I think they the get to lay is, down their burdens. I think the difference is in something you just said, which is they're Starfleet colonists, but they're not. They're Federation colonists. Well, you're right, right. And so the the difference there, the, the you know the um, Kirk and his crew are prepared to to find these mysteries and to deal with them. Where these people, their job was to go out and build a colony, and then you know, poof, they get hit with these things, and they're just in it. Yeah, you know they 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 don't have any specific training or or you know um, the best of the best kind of starship thing. You know, I, I right. I've always loved I've always loved this line. There's a line in Bread and Circuses where um, Captain Merrick is saying to the proconsul, uh, he's saying, you know, you you don't understand. This is he's the captain of not only a spaceship but a starship. And it's a very special captain and a very special crew. And, you know, I tried for it and I didn't I didn't make it in. I've always loved that delineation that the uh, Enterprise is a starship. It is it is the pinnacle of of, you know, our training and our uh, ability to to go out and, and meet these kind of mysteries. And uh, and that's what you're staffed with versus, you know, a bunch of colonists. Right. It's exceptionalism. It's competency porn. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 430 of them right exactly <laughs> uh yeah i just think that it's it very much speaks to the um the other side of the 60s uh, cultural revolution which is sure the pitch for this episode is what if the crew took lsd but the theme and the way this episode comes down is don't take lsd <laughs> because <laughs> because the colonists themselves are like We've been eating lotus for three years. What have we been doing? We got to get back to the grindstone, man. Right, right, exactly. Which is a very uh, establishment uh, theme. And Trek, you know, for all of its explorations into all kinds of social issues, you know, was made by people from the establishment for the most part. Yeah, and there's a there's a there's a great book out by David Goodman who oh. uh, um, did. Uh, he did Starfleet uh, uh, Federation the first 150 years, but he also did uh, the biography of Kirk and Picard as, oh, okay. as separate books. And sure. what's great about the biography of Kirk is that he revisits these episodes and okay. and talks about, you know, so there, there's actually a blurb where he talks about how Sandoval um, goes on to uh, to erect some some colony that ends up being super successful. And so oh. he kind of redeems himself and, and you know, uh, after the after the spore incident, and he goes into a little context about that, which is really fun. It's always fun to to kind of get these threads, you know, and, and play with them a little bit. And he doesn't mention a lot. of it. It's not like he goes into a whole chapter about it. But but there's, like you know, four or five lines about how how this guy, you know, after this incident went on to to actually succeed and, and do what he planned to do from the start. Well, as we get to the end of the episode here, our episode, did you have any last things that you wanted to say about this show? Uh, you know, it's the very first frame of Star Trek I ever saw was, uh, I missed the, the beginning where they're on the ship. I just, I started by watching them beam down okay. uh, to this thing. And, and Kirk gives this little kind of speech where he says, well, these people came all this way and died. And, and then the, you know, Sandoval says hardly that. And it's, oh, dun, 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 you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so just that whole little sequence, that whole 30 seconds of film, um, 
was enough to come. I mean, you have the guy with the ears. I didn't know what was, who was he? They were yeah. all carrying these cool devices. What were those? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, Kirk is obviously the guy in command and, and they're all surprised by this, this guy who shows up. I mean, I, that was enough to compel me to start down this path. And of course, we, you know, I didn't have the internet in 1972. So, right. you know, it was all a matter of finding people or going to conventions or, you know, it was this weird, um, I don't know, this weird black market of, you know, trying to find, yeah. uh, uh, people and, and things. There weren't a lot of licensed materials. Everything was kind of haphazardly thrown out there, but that, the, that 30 seconds of film was enough to compel me to say, there's something special about this. And, um, uh, and then watching that, I remember watching that episode and just, you know, certainly Spock, he's stronger, he's smarter. That, that whole thing was cool. <laughs> But, yeah. but Kirk overcoming the spores to me was, I got to follow this guy. I, yeah. I have to know what he is doing every week. And, uh, and, and that's how it, it all started for me just with that episode and that opening. That's amazing. I, I don't mean to wax nostalgic for the good old days, but I had a similar, um, experience with Star Trek, the next generation. Um, I watched, uh, the original series in syndication when I was very young and it was more just, oh, colorful, you know, characters doing things and didn't really get what was going on. And so TNG was the first episode or show that I was really ready to sort of interface with. And I remember, you know, back then, like you said, no Internet. So if you want information, if you want to read uh, sort of a presses of the show or find out about the characters, it was appointment TV. You had to come back next week. Exactly. To find out more about those characters. Yeah. And in Farpoint, uh, there's the... Uh, the scene where they're on trial, you know, in front of Q and data is doing the thing where he is um, replaying back what the, uh, somebody has said and he's doing it in their voice. And I remember talking to my uncle and being like, yeah, they've got this guy on the show and he's got all this, he's this white skin and he can talk like other people. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and my, my uncle's like, oh, well, he's an, he's an Android. And I'm like, oh my mind blown. Exactly. Like, Boom. He's an Android character. <gasps> oh boy. Yeah. So, yeah, I understand uh, how this could uh, attract you in that way. Uh, this is a great episode, um, and it and the contributions of DC, DC Fontana have been remembered for good reason. And I've always said that Nimoy is the only person that could have played Spock, but he's also a talented actor with a lot of range. And as long as Crazy Gas episodes give him a chance to show that range, I say keep him coming. Right, amen. Yeah. The last time you were on the program, you called out Captain Kirk as your favorite captain because he's a man of action and he's by the book, but he knows when to bend the rules. Uh, those are two qualities that are on display in this side of paradise. What other Starfleet captain do you think would succeed in this situation? Uh, Janeway. Okay. Yeah, I think Janeway is also that kind of, uh, like Kirk, I think she is a... F uh, no. And, and this is, you know, it's splitting hairs because, look, they're all – every one of these captains is a, a paragon oh, to themselves. Sure. Right. You know? yeah. but, all exceptional. But, but I think that um, Janeway is a force of will like like Kirk is. Right. I think they have this, this, uh, this inner, you know, um, gargantua ego that can – overcome things that, that normally they could you know i often think like if if the borg had captured kirk he'd have broke out <laughs> you, you know what I mean? right 
<laughs> I am Lacutus of Borg. And then he would have turned around and, you know, shocked the queen and, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, or um, talk them into uh, exploding or something. Exactly. Like he would have asked them why with whatever inflection, to, you know, he makes all computers explode <laughs> when he says that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think it would be Janeway. Okay. I could see that. Uh, and we'd have a situation perhaps where, um, maybe Tuvok or Seven is infected with the spores and is able to uh, sort of broaden themselves emotionally as a character. And then we have to sort of deal with that. Also, she we've got the added problem of her trying to get everybody home. And I'm sure, thinking back, I'm sure that the uh, show dealt with this once or twice. I can't remember any particular times. Uh, but, th- you know, if they found a planet like this may, and they were all happy and they could live there, maybe they would give up their uh, quest to to return home. You know, maybe this could be their new home. I think everyone would be... except her. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that would be something that they'd have to struggle because with. that's the thing that's weighing on her, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a good pick. Yeah. Uh, now that this episode is over, you will receive a promotion from the rank of ensign to lieutenant junior grade. Now I know that you were assigned as a helmsman uh, previously, uh, but you have your eye on the command track. How's how's that progressing? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't hit anything while piloting okay. the ship, so sure. <laughs> so I'm doing all right. And I have to imagine that whatever watch you're on, uh, as we've seen uh, in the movies for sure, it's it can be a dangerous thing to sit in front of a console on a on a Starfleet bridge. Yeah, you so, get sucked right out the front there. You're blown yep. right out. Or maybe a, a well placed panel explosion or two, and you'll be right up in the running again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows why Starfleet packs their panels with C4, but it's very important for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, promotions. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, well, good luck on yours. Uh, Lieutenant Rossi, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is a, a bit odd, but it's uh, LT means hope. Okay. So it looks like it means hope. It looks like it means hope, and it's a, a Delta symbol with the Superman symbol in place of the star. Oh, <laughs> okay. There we go. Licensing nightmare. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me. Uh, thank you so much. It was always a lot of fun. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.